Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Candace Davies. Candace is a former psychotherapist who worked extensively in the field of addiction and eating disorders for over a decade. She has always been intrigued by the ways in which the mind and body are or aren't connected and the various forms in which this communication can be enhanced or severed. She believes that the ways in which people nourish and feed themselves exist in several manners, and this has resulted in her always being interested in the ways in which people fill themselves up, both literally and metaphorically. Candace currently runs online cooking courses and a membership that help people gain confidence in the kitchen, and she constantly encourages her clients to embrace finding pleasure in what they eat. In the episode, she shares why it's absolutely critical for your mind and body to feel connected, her reasons for starting a cooking membership, how to make tasty meals in just minutes, and more. Before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, Dry Farm Wines. If you're a wine lover like me, but haven't made the switch to natural wines, you're going to want to listen up because natural wines can change your life. You see... Alcohol manufacturers aren't required to post ingredients or nutrition facts on their bottles, which is how they're able to sneak in sugar and other additives. Fortunately, Dry Farm Wines has come to the rescue. Their natural wines are lab-tested to ensure they're sugar-free, lower in sulfites and alcohol, and also free from other industrial additives. Since I've grown accustomed to drinking natural wine, Even the most expensive, top-rated conventional wines can give me headaches and just make me feel kind of gross. If you've never tried Dry Farm Wines, you're going to be immediately hooked by the flavor and quality of their products, as well as their top-notch customer service. To get a bottle of Dry Farm Wines for just a penny, visit dryfarmwines.com slash thehealthinvestment or click through the link in the show notes. And one more thing. If you've been dieting for years, but nothing you've tried has helped you keep the weight off long-term, I'm so happy you're hearing this right now. Outside of hosting this podcast, I help people lose weight for the last time without giving up carbs, counting every calorie, drinking meal replacement shakes, or other unsustainable extremes. Unlike diets, apps, and programs that are one-size-fits-all and only provide short-term results, I help you make evidence-based, effortless habit changes so that you can drop those pesky pounds for good, feel completely in control around food, and start showing up as the trimmest, healthiest, most confident, most energized version of yourself. You can learn more about my programs at thehealthinvestment.com, and please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions. I always love hearing from you. All right, it's time to hear from Candice. Enjoy! I'm Brooke Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Candice. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast all the way from South Africa. Thanks, Brooke. I'm I'm really excited to be here and to chat to you. I was mentioning, I think I've had several guests randomly from Australia, but never anyone from South Africa. So you're the first and we're so excited to have you here. Awesome. Awesome. I'm very happy to be the first. Can you tell us a bit about your background and specifically what led you to become a psychotherapist and eventually to specialize in addiction and eating disorders? Sure. So, Brooke, I suppose I'm like a 
an entrepreneur at heart, but I only really mm. discovered that kind of um, late in my later years. So fresh out of school, I had all these ideas of things I wanted to do, um, but kind of landed up going a more traditional route, studying at university, and I got my degrees. And I was really always curious in in people. In in I love. I'm like a real people's person. And so I just I kind of naturally gravitated towards psychology, and I uh, I got my psychology degree, and then landed up doing a social work degree and a master's in research. And through that process, I was at university. I felt like part of the furniture, but <laughs> um, through that process, um, I really became very very interested in addiction work. And um, actually, I ended up doing my research in my master's degree. My research project was on addiction. And through that piece of research, um, in my mind, I started, I started conceptualizing addiction, you know, learning about the NA 12-step programs and then different CBT programs and all the different kind of approaches to understanding addiction and treating addiction but in my mind I kind of started to see patterns around the various forms in which addictions can manifest and after I had uh, finished my master's I started working at an outpatient uh, rehabilitation center here um, primarily working with the narcotic and alcohol and alcohol addictions. But again, I just noticed that, you know, once and, and was particularly amongst kind of like the women, the women in the treatment centers that were in for stimulant addictions. Um, I started noticing that so many of them, when they stopped using their drug of choice, all of a sudden these eating disorders were popping up all over the place. And I'll, I'll never forget one of my psychology lecturers said, you know, um, people don't realize that their own therapists, the work that interests them often, and there's, there's a hook to it, you know, it hooks into some part of you. That's why your interest is kind of ignited in that area. And yeah. I had always been like this chronic dieter my whole life. And so when I started seeing um, these these young women or kind of older women with all these restrictive eating disorders and then on the other end the the kind of the overeating I think a part of me really resonated with that because it was like part of my own experience that I was seeing them and so I think when you've lived something and then you like see it also in in its like in its flesh in front of you you um you're quite blessed in a way because you've got a, an insight and an understanding into that particular phenomenon and so I don't know if I meant to but I started kind of being known as someone who who really understood addiction and eating disorders and then that's kind of like kind of took off and so my practice kind of boomed because um you know stimulant addictions often mask an eating disorder because you your appetite is suppressed and then once you're not using the stimulant anymore the eating disorder flares up so feels like a long answer to your question but I suppose yeah I just kind of started becoming known as the girl who works with addiction but also who really understands eating disorders. I know Part of it is you became really intrigued, you say, by the disconnect between mind and body, especially in the eating disorder patients you saw. Can you explain more about that? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. So so I started, as I said, I had this private practice. And um, and so like more and more patients were being referred to me with, with eating disorders. And obviously, they weren't using narcotics anymore. So the eating disorder was almost given space to really reveal itself and what I noticed was that a lot of the time I, 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 I could sense my own not my own I could sense my patients frustration in their lack of, of progress with with their eating disorders and I was really curious about why that was because they were regular they were really committed to the therapy they were doing the work 
And what I started to think about was that it just felt like really intellectual. It felt like they were they were they were very comfortable to come to therapy and in a talk therapy kind of way just to kind of like talk about the problem and then the hope was that if they just understood it enough then it would shift and of course yeah. um you know it, all all therapists know that it, i mean I, I wish it worked like that I, I mean i don't even think therapists i think actually anybody would think a thought like that you know if I just understand why I do this thing <laughs> then once I understand it I won't do it anymore and of course we don't really work like that as humans because we can have all this understanding and all this intellectual awareness about something but it's and then you're still doing the thing that you don't want to be doing it you know um mm-hmm. so yeah, they were they were really comfortable just week after week or sometimes twice a week I was seeing some patients and and you know and and as long as we were just talking about things, you know, they were comfortable. But the minute we we try to transition into doing any kind of like body awareness stuff, there was like a real resistance. And of course with eating disorders, so much of the problem um resides in that gap. That, that there is a mind but there's also a body and the two are not communicating with one another in a very attuned way and that's what that's what I meant when you know when I said there was like this real disconnect the mind was super aware hyper intellectualizing so much awareness but very little kind of translation into into the physical body which of course if you're speaking about things like your hunger cues and your drives and your desires and pleasure and all of that, you have to be somehow connected to your body. And then my thought was, well, if the body and the mind then kind of married together, then you would see this real movement going forward in terms of like their recoveries. Mm, right. We When you just said hunger cues, that struck a chord with me because that's something I talk with pretty much every client about is getting in tune with your hunger and your fullness cues. And so I've noticed a lot of clients when they come to work with me, I do nutrition coaching and I primarily help with weight loss. Uh, But sometimes people will say they feel addicted to food. And really when we kind of unpack that and we get them eating more nutrients throughout the day, for example, if they're getting more protein and produce and healthy fats and they're eating enough, their cravings kind of disappear in the night and they realize, oh, I actually wasn't addicted to the snacks I was eating at night. I was really just hungry because I wasn't eating enough in the day or I wasn't eating enough again of the nutrients that are going to fuel my body so that I actually feel full. So how can you tell uh, if somebody actually has a food addiction versus what I just described and mm-hmm. they're maybe just not getting the right fuel for their body throughout the day, what kind of distinguishes that? Mm. So that is such a good question. Um, and Brooke, I actually think they linked because mm. I'm also not entirely convinced about like the the addiction to food as the food is the problem, you know. I mean, I've always understood addiction as being, you can you could almost like insert anything that has the ability to just take you out of yourself as having the potential to be addictive. So when people would say they're addicted to food, I would always say, I'm not sure if it's a food problem or if it's a feeling problem. You know, like we we have these feelings inside of us that are big and intense and and scary, frightening, sometimes not even conscious, you know, we're not even conscious of that internal state. And because we just don't know how to deal with that, we just do something that distracts us from that. And so we eat. So I think there's like that element to it. But then, of course, we also know that certain foods have that propensity that once you eat them and you're eating them in um, big quantities that physiologically they kind of unleash a series of events that then make you want to eat more of them and so on and so on so I think they're actually quite interlinked and I think the thing for me that is always that, that I kind of like in the in in a person's history 
you can almost see like little breadcrumbs um, of like remnants of like addictive qualities that would kind of tip you to the fact that okay this this is lying in the realm of more like a it sounds like such an under um what's the word I'm looking for almost like it's not really hitting home with what I want to say but it's like Mm. um there's tendency to be avoidant of how you feel and that's what I mean by like they're more like addictive qualities to this person's behavior there's a pattern of pain and and difficult feelings and difficult experiences and then various behaviors that the person's kind of gone from this to this to this to this to kind of avoid looking at that and food might just be one way that does that really well if someone's listening and they feel as if they kind of have some of those avoidant breadcrumbs as you said Mm -hmm. uh is part of the solution just getting more in touch and trying to connect mind and body is that I know there's probably so much that you so much work you could do with a therapist and kind of unpack a bunch of stuff but is that a place to start yeah I definitely think so because exactly like you're saying look with the intense restrictive eating disorders like your anorexia nervosa those eating disorders it's really hard to do that work on your own because there is such a denial of a biological drive, you know, the drive to eat, which is actually a survival instinct. Um, there is such a denial of that drive that if, if a person who has like those kinds of tendencies where there's like a high caloric restriction, um, almost to the point of starvation, it's it's quite unlikely a person would be able to do that on their own. And so like the, um kind of intense interventions are usually most effective with that but the other the other kind of eating disorders or patterns of disordered eating you know many women will tell you oh I'm such an emotional eater you know that that kind of history or women that have been chronic dieters their whole lives or you know you that kind of woman would be able to start doing the work of just becoming like curious about, oh, I'm eating now. Gosh, I didn't even realize I was hungry. Was I hungry? And what am I eating? Did I even feel like eating the thing that's in my hand, you know? Or did I just grab the first thing that I that I came across? So I think, yes, I think you can absolutely begin the work of just becoming aware of if you're hungry, do you override that desire to eat or do you even allow yourself to be hungry do you allow yourself to empty or are you the kind of person you know like people that always have to have fuel in their cars they can't allow the the gauge to drop even to like half empty you know we do that with our eating as well we just make sure we always full we never empty we never desire because it's if we do desire, we we frightened we will eat everything on the planet, you know, and that speaks to more kind of underlying stuff around pleasure and desire. So I think it's like a complicated thing, but you don't have to begin with a therapist. You could start becoming curious about your patterns of behavior around eating and um, yeah, just just how you listen or don't listen to what your body is saying. I love that. I That's something I work with clients on is the whole getting curious thing. And I just believe so much that the more self-aware we are of our own bodies and when we can connect to our hunger and our fullness cues and we know which foods make us feel our best. It's just super empowering. Mm. And that process of curiosity and discovery is one of the most incredible things I think you can do um, instead of just operating from kind of robotic, Mm -hmm. you know, I eat this now or I grab this now and then never pausing to ask the questions. And I say to kind of do it almost like a scientist, like just gather data. It's not even to say, oh, I'm eating and I'm not hungry and then beat yourself up over it. Just think, hmm, that's interesting. You know, just make these observations without a a lot of emotion attached. Absolutely, Um, absolutely. And and it's so funny that you say that because I used to say to my 
patience. I want you to imagine that you are Sherlock Holmes and you're going to put on your detective hat and you're just going to go in and survey the evidence, you know, leave your feelings at the door. We can pick them up now, now, but what do you see? You know, try to describe the event as if it wasn't you. Mm -hmm. I love that. Do you find that having clients or um, just anyone keep some type of food journal can be helpful? So I didn't, I actually didn't use that method primarily because, so as I said, I started becoming like kind of, I started building a name for myself as someone who worked with eating disorders, but um, I really gave, I I think I really found my groove, let me rather say it that way, working with women who have histories of dieting, like I'm speaking Mm. chronic dieters, like started at 12, they're in their like 50s, they're still on the latest diet. (laughs) Um, And I have found that with those kinds of people, so the the self-identified emotional eaters slash chronic dieters, you know, kind of like in one of those turnstiles, just on and off and on and off and on and off, you know. And food journals are quite triggering because so many weight loss Mm. programs um, ask you to keep a journal, you know, depending on which diet you're following, they're either point allocated or color coded or green lists, red lists, good, bad, blah, 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 blah. So um, I didn't actually do food journals. But what I did ask is to, to, to journal the thinking. And like you said, Brooke, you know, so much of overeating or just unconscious eating where you almost, it's almost like your mind vacates and your before you know it, you know, it's almost like an out-of-body experience. You come back into yourself and you're like, oh my gosh, what did I just eat? Um, there's so little awareness that um, you can't really insert a gap or a pause to be like, oh, oh, hold on, I just had a feeling. And that feeling was, and then name the feeling. And then I had a thought, you know, so I was working a lot with with my clients on just slowing that process down so that they could catch the thoughts before acting on them. That's a cool idea to do more of a feeling thought journal. Yeah. If some type of food journaling is triggering for somebody who has that long history. Yes. Aside from the kind of getting curious Sherlock Holmes idea, what are other ways we can be more deeply connected to our body and make that connection with our mind? So I think um, the first thing that I, again, I was like a broken record, you know, just going on and on about the same thing. Um, But it was so helpful just to like um, remind these, these ladies that this is a skill, you know, like being really tuned in to your body, especially if you haven't been for a long time in your life is it's just a skill and so mm. you've just got to be aware that at first you're gonna you actually gonna think like this is another language like I don't know how to do this it feels ridiculous or silly or I, I feel lost and confused and all of that is totally normal and that it just takes loads and loads of practice and one thing I found so helpful, and, and I think this is where I kind of started transitioning more into the body work, was if I can just divert for a brief second and tell you a little a little backdrop story to it. So yeah, I had all these patients, and obviously, you know, there's like a confidentiality that protects patients, and no one knew who I was working with, but I just like really believe that if these women could all meet and have some kind of group process going on, it would have been so much more powerful um, to know that, like, you know, you, you're nodding your head when someone else is talking because you're like, oh, my gosh, that is me. And so I ran a day, a two-day retreat and invited, you know, I kind of, like, advertised it in my practice, and I had a couple of my patients um, sign up for it. And so I had already been, like, playing with this idea that, like, how was I going to help or how was I going to facilitate a process where these women could stop being so darn intellectual <laughs> and get into their bodies, you know, where 
there was so much wisdom in their bodies and they're so petrified of their bodies. They feel betrayed and distrustful and whatever. And um, so I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to plan this this retreat and I'm going to do a whole lot of stuff that these ladies have probably never ever done before and I had I had this incredible artist friend of mine come and she did this like um you know that that art form of I think it's when they when I don't know if it's Japanese and I'm so reluctant to get it wrong but when they take a broken bowl and they kind of put it back together with with gold I think it's consumium something like that. Um, she did this incredible process with them where they each had to break something and then put it back together with, with gold paint and kind of the idea that, you know, you, you can, when you, when you feel so broken, actually something can be so much better and more beautiful after being put back together. It was really very powerful. And, I, and then I invited a whole lot of people that I knew who were working in different modalities of movement. So moving the body in different ways. So I invited someone who does um, Nia, which is like a very expressive um, dance form. And it's like a very intuitive dance form. And I mean, you, I could see people were totally awkward. Like, this is ridiculous. I don't want to do it because again, like so disconnected from even the feeling that the body wanted to move or the beat sounded nice and feeling embarrassed to like move along. And uh, and then I had a yoga instructor come along and then I had someone come to do a meditation. So I just kind of invited the participants to explore different ways to move their bodies and to see which one they enjoyed. And it was so amazing that that is what (laughs) none of the groups, none of the therapy in inverted commas, you know, none of the intellectual therapy is what hit home with them. What, What I heard about for weeks after were the different things that they got to try. And, and I suppose that's what I was going to get to with, with what you asked, which is that getting to learn your body getting to learn the language that your body speaks because your body will speak a different language to someone else's it just takes a lot of practice and a lot of exploration like finding ways to move your body that your body really responds to finding something that ordinarily you might not think is for you because it's not your personality you know but maybe your mind absolutely loves it you know I found that yoga is a great for many of the ladies I worked with they really enjoyed the yoga and the meditation because the yoga the physical postures you know that is where your body's getting the movement and then the meditation and lying in shavasana or listening to someone read something beautiful or just being quiet just being with your body the mind really responds to that And the more you find these practices that encourage you to listen, you know, so if it's like a coach like yourself, Brooke, you know, who's encouraging women to listen or a practice like yoga or Nia or a meditation practice or, you know, Tai Chi, anything where you are really encouraged to pause, stop, listen, and then respond, I would say that's your best starting point. I Yeah, that's so cool. Uh, when you said initially that it's really a skill, I think that's also such an important point because it's, I'm sure people maybe have said something similar to you, but you know, you're born into one body, you have one body through this life. Um, and then you feel as if you should just know how to kind of operate and how to eat what right. And then your, you know, senses can be hijacked by all of these processed foods and things and you get thrown off and maybe off track for a while. So I find that a lot of clients will feel like a failure if they don't know exactly how to connect with their bodies or how to eat properly. Um, 
and yeah, it is just a skill. I think just saying that of, you know, this is something to practice. It doesn't just come naturally. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with you if it's not just coming naturally to you right now, but it eventually can through some work is just a really freeing idea as mm-hmm. well that mm-hmm. it's not, there's nothing wrong with you basically. Oh, <laughs> you, absolutely. So then I know you've now transitioned and you've started a cooking membership, mm-hmm. which <laughs> I see the connection here again between mind, body, you know, making things for yourself to fuel your body. So can you explain why, why cooking? Why is it so important for people to learn to cook and prepare food for themselves? Sure. Yeah, so like I said, right at the beginning of our conversation, I think I've always had entrepreneurial blood in me, but I just didn't know it (laughs) because in my kind of like my early 20s, friends of mine started saying, oh, please won't you teach me how to make whatever, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever they had just eaten at at my house. And so I kind of just like randomly started teaching friends of mine how to cook. And then that kind of grew as a sideline business. And um, in South Africa here, there are um, many, many families who um, are able to afford domestic help. And so I actually started teaching a lot of domestic helpers how how to cook. And I had this actually very successful business on the side. And then when my private practice really got um, kind of more demanding, I, I couldn't keep um, everything up so something kind of had to give and so I kind of focused m- more on my private practice and then again you know my life changed I got married I have I had three small children I, well I still have three small children but and then I just found my private practice was um, I wasn't able to give emotionally to it in a way that I would have liked to because my family now was was needing me so I I kind of tapped back into my cooking and a friend of mine actually said to me, yeah, but it all makes sense because you've always been about everything that nourishes people, you know, what feeds you, you know, therapy and yoga. I mean, I also did a yoga teacher's training in all of this (laughs) and food. And so you are all about like nourishment. And so I started cooking again and recently launched an online cooking membership because yeah, I absolutely love cooking. And I really, I think for me, my message is about empowering people to find pleasure in food. That food is actually supposed to be this joyful, delicious, (laughs) like experience, not something we use to like punish ourselves and deprive ourselves and torture ourselves with, which so many women, and I'm sure men too, but, you know, my practice was predominantly women, but that food is kind of used as a weapon, you know, you can withhold it, or you can overindulge in it, and you can hurt yourself physically and emotionally, you can go to really dark places, and so on and so on, so for me, I think it's so important to know how to cook for yourself, why is it so important to learn how to cook for yourself, because I think that it just gives you a, a lot more control over what you choose for yourself. So, mm. you know, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I'm just assuming in the States there's a big culture of convenience food. There's, there's certainly a big culture of that here. There's lots of takeout and on the move and fast food. And, you know, I, everyone's so busy and frantic. And gosh, I mean, you were saying how no one's do, doing anything wrong if they can't listen to themselves. I don't know how people listen to themselves in in, in their daily lives. It's like frantic and like traffic right. and work and children and this and this. And your, your brain feels like it's going to explode. You've got so much on your mind. If you can actually listen to yourself, I mean, I think you should just like give yourself a big high five because (laughs) most of us are like at the end of the day like oh my god you know where was I in my day I wasn't even in my day um so I love preparing food for my family I love cooking I love eating food and I like to know what's in my food and I just feel I personally feel a lot healthier when I'm eating home-cooked food I don't like how my body feels when I'm eating a lot of 
takeout and convenience food and food that's just like on the go and it's highly processed and my body eventually will give me signals like, whoa, you are overdoing it. You do, I'm like lethargic and I'm moody and I'm irritable. And when I'm eating my own home-cooked meals, I just feel a lot happier. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I agree. I feel the same way. It's, you know, I love eating at restaurants occasionally for the social aspect, especially that's one of my favorite things to go to a big meal with friends and, you know, have a long dinner with appetizers and entrees and wine, but doing that every day or getting takeout in between is a lot. And I now can definitely feel the difference in my body when I'm eating the stuff that I make for myself versus Mm -hmm. what some restaurant is making me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you say, I think I found this on your website, my favorite kind of meal to prepare is one that tastes like it took hours to cook, but actually didn't, mm-hmm. which blew my mind because that's amazing. I think that's what we're all after. <laughs> Can you tell us more about that? What tips do you have? I mean, how do you make a meal that really was really very quick, but seems like it took hours to cook and it's mm-hmm. just delicious? So I, Brooke, you know, I actually think a lot of people overestimate how how difficult it is to to make home-cooked food so a lot of the time when I'm speaking to people that are kind of living that lifestyle like we were just describing like they're very aware they feel unhealthy they're not happy with what they're feeding their families they know they're eating too much convenience food blah 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 and I'll say to them but then why don't you cook And they'll say, oh my God, I don't have time to cook or I don't have hours to spend in the kitchen. And I'm like, oh, but do you know that you don't need hours? And they look at me like, huh? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing that I have found ways to cook unbelievably delicious food that's really simple and it does not take a long time. And I so, and I think I've just done that because I've like curated and developed recipes over 20 years. And um, I use great ingredients. I use fresh ingredients. I cook so much with herbs, like fresh herbs. Um, I don't I don't use a lot of like bottled spices. Wherever I can, I'm cooking with fresh stuff. And I think that there isn't anything that kills creativity and inspiration quite like routine and being in a rut and so I'm always looking for like creative and inspired ideas things that you probably would never think about because maybe you didn't you you don't know that it's actually quite simple to do if you know how to do it well so I think those tips are like to find the recipes that are flop proof or foolproof the first time around they just work and uh, you know so you're not wasting your money on ingredients you're not wasting the very precious time that you do have in the kitchen you know I don't know I'm a mom of three I, like I cannot be in the kitchen for longer than an hour like even an hour for me feels like okay there was there was a bit long but yeah I think if you just Find the right recipes if you cook with good ingredients and um, you keep things interesting and new, that cooking starts to become something that maybe you like never thought you would be that person who really enjoys it, but it actually starts to become this outlet for your creativity and your family, like you don't have any like sulking faces at dinner time anymore, you know, where you're like begging everyone to please eat what you've made. <laughs> I think it's so important too, um, as you're speaking, you know, it becomes a skill. And I used to think of myself as the worst cook ever. And I met my husband and he was so great at just throwing things together. But what I saw from him in the kitchen was really just a confidence. Mm -hmm. And I would say, how did you know to put that in? What are you doing? How do you know that? And he would say, oh, you know, I watched this, this, and this. And really, I'm just trying it out. And he was just throwing stuff together. And often it tasted great. But having that confidence that you're probably, the worst that could happen is maybe it doesn't taste amazing, but you're probably not going to completely poison your family or mess it up, right? (laughs) And just to go in there and maybe you use a few recipes and maybe you add a new one each week. So it's not overwhelming of 
I'm cooking all of these new things. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you learn from the recipes of what things go together exactly. and build a confidence. And now I'm at the point where I do, I would say kind of the majority of the cooking and I still don't consider myself a chef, if you will, but <laughs> I'm better because I've been doing it for so many years and I do have that confidence now mm-hmm. of I can whip something up super quick. It's going to be really delicious. Um, and yeah, I don't need yeah. to turn to recipes all the time. They can be a great addition here and there, yeah. but it's, it, like you said, I mean, I spend very little time in the kitchen, very, very little time. And we make most of our meals for ourselves. So it is such a misconception that you have to spend hours and hours cooking because you really don't. <laughs> yeah, you really don't. And I, I, I suppose that's the theme of what we're kind of speaking about. It's like these things in our lives that we want to change or work on or develop or better. They all just skills, you know, and the more you practice and the more effort you give to it, the better you become at it. And and something that I've found so helpful for the people who do join my membership and, and have that concern like you do, which is like, oh my gosh, but um, I, I can't cook every night. I'm like, no, but nobody's asking you to cook every night. You can't expect that you're going to come in being a family who's living on convenience food, frozen foods, microwave foods, to a family that's overnight going to go to eating home-cooked meals every night. So all I'm asking is just choose one night in the week. Just choose one night and make that your night. Commit to a Tuesday evening or a Thursday evening or a Sunday, whenever. And just that one night practice a really easy recipe from the membership and if you need help I'll tell you what's a quick win and do that for like six weeks only cook one night and then once you have found your feet and you feel like okay I can do this then maybe try a second night you know we 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 so often go into things thinking we're going to go from one extreme to the other and then become totally overwhelmed and it's not sustainable and then we give up so we rather want to take small steps make it more consistent so you've got a better chance of this thing actually sticking you know you you will actually do this thing for longer if you have a slow burn I think it's like what you were saying of the diets that people have been in and the diet culture and society's messages of the only way people will think to lose weight or get healthy or whatever is to just change everything all at once because that's what often diets have told us to do. Mm-hmm. So people will cut out all sugar or not eat any carbs or do whole 30 or something drastic. And like you said, it's only sustainable then for mm-hmm. a few weeks, maybe a month, maybe a couple months, but I'm exactly on board with you. It's the small changes. You've got to take it so slow and it feels weird at first to just mm-hmm. make one change but it's so much better if you make one change every month. That's 12 changes over the course of the year that will last you forever. That's so much better than just doing something for three weeks. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And you also, like you were saying, you know, you then you learn to trust yourself. You know, I know mm. so many people that are like, they have such good intention and they sign up for these programs or even like my membership. They come in and they like so enthusiastic and then they go oh my gosh, like the doors open and they are like cooking like crazy and then they vanish, you know? Mm-hmm. And the thing about that is like it's not great for you because you had the intention to create something different for yourself. But because you've come in almost a little too enthusiastic, I think when the person gives up, you you often people feel so disappointed. They're like, you see, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it, yeah. which is actually, no, you could do it. I think you just... You just burnt out too quickly. Yeah. I had a client the other day who we had decided she was just going to focus on breakfast and just getting her first meal of the day filled with nutrients. We had a few things she was going to make. And she started 
the week and she was feeling so good. She said, oh my gosh, I'm not grabbing a million snacks before lunch and I have energy and this is so exciting. And so she texted and she said, could you actually send me a bunch of lunch and dinner stuff as well? Because I just want to do everything. I said, you're doing great. Yeah, I was like, I get it. You're feeling so good and you want to do it all. But no, I can't. I can't send you all the lunch and dinner stuff because we're just going to stick with breakfast um, cause that's going to end up being detrimental. Right. And like you said, totally. such good intentions and that maybe in your membership, people are cooking one day a week and they're probably experiencing that where they feel amazing and they love the meal and they want to just then cook five nights a week. Yeah. But <laughs> I guess a takeaway here could be more is not always more. Less yeah. is totally more, yeah. especially when it comes to instituting new habits especially when it comes to that, in my opinion, you know? Yes. Yeah. 100%. Well, I am so happy we connected. I could honestly Me talk too. to you all day, but <laughs> uh, the final question or one of the final questions I ask each of my guests is based on the title of the podcast. Um, and it's in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? I love that question. And I think it's probably like bits and pieces of what we've been discussing in this episode, but I suppose it's just, for me to invest in your own health means to understand that you should be a priority in your own life. You know, Mm. I think, I think this is particularly true for women who, I don't know if this is just like a kind of evolutionary thing that's built in, I suppose maybe a lot of modern women might disagree with what I'm saying, but I do think we, kind of have been conditioned to putting everybody's needs before us, you know. And so mm-hmm. our own needs are so often low down on on our priority list or whatnot. And and I remember I just often say to my patients, you need to insert yourself into your own life. If you mm-hmm. want to go to a yoga class, you need to schedule that in, like literally Make that block the time out on your diary. And that's like a non-negotiable because we have to show up in our own lives if we want to be healthy and well. It doesn't happen by osmosis. You can't be unconscious in your own responsibility to yourself. So to make the investment in yourself means that you get why you are doing the things you need to be doing so that you can participate fully in your life and take responsibility for all your choices and knowing that it's not always going to be easy, you know? So investing in ourselves and and putting ourselves on our lists and making ourselves a priority isn't always easy. Mm -hmm. As you're saying that, I was thinking of, have you seen the movie The Holiday? Uh, I watched it last night, Brooke. Oh, see, this is why we connected. <laughs> okay, it's one of my, we're at that time, right? It's Thanksgiving in the United States next week and Christmas season or holiday season is approaching, but uh, I need to watch it ASAP. But I was thinking, you know, when the, um, like her older mentor, uh, Kate Winslet's older mentor, the guy who's so sweet, he says to her, you need to stop playing the supporting yes. role in your life. You need yes. to be the leading lady. You need gumsha. Yeah, you do. <laughs> and you need to be the leading role in your life, not the supporting role. Exactly. And that's what it was making me think yes. of as you were yes. saying that. You know, prioritize yourself. It's so trite and spread all over social media now. And it kind of makes me cringe. But all the self-care isn't selfish posts that we see. I mean, it is true, right? Mm-hmm. Self-care prioritizing yourself it's not selfish and you will end up showing up as a better version of yourself for all the people around you and your career and whatnot so well I suppose I suppose Brooke sorry just just before we yeah yeah cheers but I suppose it's because you know I too like I look at these like (laughs) these Instagrams and I'm like okay so you're lying in a bubble bath (laughs) okay that's great and I mean yes of, of course that's like pampering you know you pampering yourself But self-care for me also can be like doing the difficult stuff, which is like, Mm. yeah, it's like cold and I don't feel like getting to the gym and I don't feel like going for a run. 
But actually, like moving my body is a form of self-care. That's my self-care because my body needs to move. Or Mm -hmm. the way I feed myself, you know, yes, of course, it's more palatable to go eat the huge piece of carrot cake and it's delicious. No one's saying it's not. But it's also a form of self-care when we eat highly nutritious food. You know, how do we take care of ourselves? It's also about the company we keep, you know, who we follow on social media. So for me, the self-care is, is, you know, the stuff we see on social media. It's like almost like the first layer, which is like all the Mm -hmm. pampering stuff. Yeah. But it's also... Right, exactly. Yeah. It's like more like really getting critical you know your diet isn't just what you eat your diet is who you hang out with what you watch what you read who you follow that's your diet you know how do you take care of yourself yeah I love that and it's so true it's all of the bubble baths and massages and facials and stuff that have made that phrase kind of trite but a hundred percent I mean self-care like we've been talking about can be like you said, cooking a meal for yourself, or maybe it's connecting with a friend on a walk, a long distance friend. I mean, there's so many things that are free that you can do in your day-to-day basis and take five minutes. It doesn't have to be, I mean, those amazing things are awesome as well, traveling and Mm -hmm. all the massages, but it's not practical for a day-to-day basis. So kind of reframing your mindset in terms of what self-care can look like and it can even look like saying no to something yeah you know Mm -hmm. self-care can also be like yeah no I'm gonna pass on that because I just know it's not good for me or those people aren't my kind of people you know so even saying no is a is a form of boundaries Mm -hmm. of self-care right well I am so grateful that we connected and I would love for you to share where can listeners follow and find you so I am mainly on Instagram and Facebook and my handle is cook with canned Davies. Okay. Cook with canned Davies. I'll put that link in the show awesome. notes. Um, so Instagram and Facebook, and then do you have a website as well? I do. It's www.canneddavies.com. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for being here. I'll oh, put thanks all those for having links me. in the show notes. Yeah. And I look forward to staying connected um, for months and years to come. Awesome. Me too. Thank you, Brooke. And thank you to your listeners. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the health investment podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners on your way out. Remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.